Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, Ed Straw here to introduce a special bonus episode for you from our sister podcast, The Race F1 Tech Show. Each week, I'm joined by former F1 technical director Gary Anderson to talk through the big tech topics of the day and to hone in on other technical talking points you may not know much about. If you enjoy it, just search for The Race F1 Tech Show in whatever podcast app you're listening to this in, and either follow or subscribe. And now, over to me. The Athletic. F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. We kick off our new series with an in-depth look at semi-automatic gearboxes with the help of special guest John Barnard. Gary Anderson talks through his experience of developing such technology at Jordan and gives his opinion on F1's cost cap controversy. And in listeners' questions, we discuss 2022 spec F1 cars and their performance levels in low-speed corners. Welcome back to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. We're delighted to have our second series up and running, and we've got a veritable cavalcade of tech topics to come. I'm Ed Straw, and as always, I'm joined by the star of the show, Gary Anderson. Gary, of course, has half a century of experience in and around F1, has been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. So welcome to the new series, Gary. Rowing to go? Yeah, all round to go, yeah. It's, it's a good series because it obviously tries to bring home questions that you answer that want to be answered as opposed to just blurbing on about something uh, needlessly. Yeah, and there's going to be lots more later in the series, lots of different topics, lots of different areas of discussion, and there is even the chance in every episode for listeners to ask a question which Gary answers. That's towards the end of each episode, so look out for that later on. But Gary, as always, we start off by letting you pick a technical topic that's caught your eye in Formula One this week. So what's your choice? Well, I think it would be uh, negligent not to discuss the cost cap and its uh, relationship to development. You know, technically, technically racing, the racing cars are all about uh, development, new parts, new new ideas, implementing them and getting them on the car at the track. And you have to pay for that somehow. So, you know, the cost cap rule was put in to try and control that to a certain level. Um, I've, I've said many times, I think it's too complicated. There's too much not in the complete cost cap. I think it should be, personally, I think it should be everything. Uh, the cost cap would always be a lot higher, but it would be everything. Um, so it would just be a normal accounts at the end of the year that you'd have to hand in, and, and that's that's how much you spent. End of story. You have to spend less than the next. But that's not the way it is. Um, and it's taken until now for the FIA to go through all the... the um, the presentations from the teams and uh, analyze them and, and you know it's the first year of it so it's obviously been very tricky very difficult to, to get through it for the for the FIA and for the teams to actually know what they have to submit and what know how they have to look at it but at the end of the day well, they've come up with, a, with something that says that Red Bull have overspent uh, a minor overspend they call it um, 5% on 145 million dollars um, to, to most people isn't really a minor uh, overspend it's a fairly decent overspend um 
So it's it's one of those sort of situations. Well, what do you do with that? Now, if you had that money to spend, and that's that works out what seven million, something like that. So I'm not saying it was seven million, but it's upwards to that, upwards on that. Because if you're going to get um, a penalty for something from zero to five percent, you might as well get it for five percent as get it for half a percent. So you know, seven million is a massive amount of money uh, to to develop your car with, much more than than. I would ever have had in my life. Uh, you know, we, we had a, I remember back in, I think it was 2003, I did a budget at Jordan and to, for all of the, everything that made the car go, which was the, you know, all the racing, the, um, all the car bets, everything was 12 million. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's a long way away from that. But, you know, it's one of those sort of situations. People, people spend the money. So you pay big money for, to get good people into your company. And the one thing you don't want to do is tie their hands. So you have to allow them to to look at solutions to problems. And if you allow them to look at solutions to problems, they will want to spend money to to fix that problem. So you've got yourself your circle of events that, that means the more people you have, the more money you need to satisfy their needs. Uh, you can't just have them sitting there doing nothing. Um, and in doing something, yeah, yeah you, got, you got the overhead of the personnel, but you've got the overhead of their ideas. And that's the thing that comes to the car at the circuit and makes the car go faster. So it's a, it's a sort of circle of events. I think on, on, the, on the limitations on the car parts, the major parts, there's only, there only are a few major parts, to be honest, on the car. Um, you know, the front wing assembly as such, the underfloor assembly, including the diffuser and all the front splitters, and the rear wing assembly and beam wing. And for me... One of the things that could be introduced is just a limitation on how many times you can change that during the year. Um, and there would have to be a significant change because obviously there will be little bits of fettling here and there, but you know you list out the significant change. And um, you allow teams to change it you know, three times a year, four times a year, whatever it be. Everybody has the same opportunity and uh, at certain races that you can change it at. So there's lots and lots of ways of going about it. This is the first time it's been highlighted as being a major problem, but you know there will never be a substitute for for anything um, performance-wise. Money will never be substituted. You you definitely you definitely need to spend money to make the car go faster. And as I say, that's what the cost cap's all about. It does show that it's working reasonably well for most teams. So, yeah, uh, this is the first year. Let's see how what the outcome of it is. Um, will there be draconian penalties from the FIA to, to Red Bull? Who knows? We haven't heard about that yet. It would be sad if we saw Max Verstappen lose the 2021 World Championship because, you know, he has no idea who's eating a cheese sandwich at lunchtime or who's having a bowl of spaghetti. So he, you know, he he just drives the car and he does it so well. He has such a top-class driver as we saw in Suzuka in those conditions, you know, that to lose the 2021 Championship or even the 2022 Championship because of this, um, I suppose you might call it incompetence by the management of the team. Then I think that would be that would be very 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 poor show. And it's certainly something that while there are some baying for it, personally I suspect is very unlikely. But it's it's difficult in this sort of situation. You've been up against teams that will have been found guilty of of doing things they shouldn't have been. And obviously it's natural in that situation to feel, well, they were doing something we weren't because we knew it wasn't legal. So, of course, they should be redressed. But there's also that wider reality, isn't there? There's the political landscape. The the outcome of this is going to be about what goes on behind closed doors and the horse trading between the two sides to try and get a, an acceptable solution. So do you just sort of accept that it's going to be something 
more pragmatic, shall we say, rather than draconian? Um, I hope so. I think it has to be something that's a financial cost. But then again, that's what the cost cap's about. You can't spend your way out of out of uh, a problem, and and that's what the cost caps, you know, there to sort of uh, contain. So if it is just a financial thing, then it's it's done nothing whatsoever. If you can buy your way out of it, it's it's wrong. So I don't know. I don't know what the solution really is. It has to be it has to be thought very carefully about because it has to set a standard for the future, as well as not destroying the past. Now, you know, we've obviously got Max Verstappen supporters, we've got Lewis Hamilton supporters, we've got Charles Leclerc supporters, Ferrari supporters, Mercedes supporters, Red Bull supporters. At the end of the day, yeah, I understand everybody has their own vested opinion in, in what, what would go on. But in the general in the general overall sport of the th- sport that we see, I love to see racing. And what I saw last year was was racing with a bit of a you know, a bit hard here and there. I think it was a few errors that both Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen made that maybe they wouldn't do again. Um, and what I've seen this year is is clearer racing, but I also by, by a much more mature Max Verstappen. I mean, he's his his talent is without doubt one of the one of the one of the best. Um, and I think that would be wrong, for, as I say, for him to to suffer the consequences of a of horse trading back in, in a factory somewhere that's because people didn't do their accounts well enough to start with you know maybe it's maybe it's the fact that red bull have availability to too much money that they don't have to look after it a lot of the teams you know the smaller teams that i was with we just didn't have the money so you had to look after it you had to spend it wisely they've never had to spend it wisely and obviously it's a different deal altogether whenever you have to start spending it wisely so let's see what happens i think that's the best way to go but whatever happens i i really don't I don't, really don't want to see Max Verstappen uh, suffer. Lewis Hamilton uh, fans might not like that idea, but at the end of the day, you know that's done and dusted. What, what happened in Abu Dhabi is is a different story altogether. So we just need to let that happen and, and say that the guy that won the world championship was the best driver at that point in time, as it was in 2022 as well. Yeah, well, I'm sure there'll be plenty more talking about this in the world of F1. Certainly by the time we get to Austin, there'll be lots of team bosses willing to put their tuppence worth in on the debate, but we'll see how it plays out. Well, let's move on to our main topic for the week, which is all about semi-automatic gearboxes. We're all very familiar now with the flappy paddles on the steering wheel for gear selection, but back in 1989, this idea made its winning F1 debut in the Ferrari. More on that later when we hear from John Barnard. Now, Gary, you were, well, not quite in F1 again at this time. You were working for Reynard, so I imagine the F3000 car uh, semi-automatic gearbox wasn't really on the agenda at that time. But obviously, once you came in with Jordan in 91, there was a move across to semi-automatic gearboxes with that team. But Certainly looking at the, the tech at this time, can you just talk through what is a semi-automatic gearbox, how it works mechanically? Um, yes. Well, going back in time just a little bit, to give you a little bit more history, I, I ran a, a Reynard Formula 3000 car in 1988 for Roberto Moreno. He was our driver, a very, very good friend of mine, Brazilian, very good driver, and we won the championship. But Roberto did the initial, all the initial testing with the Ferrari for John Barnard. So... Um, Quietly, I got to know a bit about it all happening. The, the, the system they had then was very, very different to what it is now. The system they had then was basically taking a standard gearbox, which has got um, uh, selector rails, sort of like three selector rails with a selector on them, 
and uh, basically the, the driver with the gear lever would move move those selector rails. That's why it's called an H pattern. You pull it towards you, uh, you, yeah, you pull it down towards you, and then backwards that selects one of the rails and puts it in a certain gear. And what Barnard did initially was to put solenoids on those rails. So you just send an electrical signal from the steering wheel, and instead of the driver having to pull that lever to move that selector rail, it uh, it moved it for you. Um, so in reality, it was an adaption to a normal gearbox system at that point in time. Um, but um, then it moved on to, to being a more of a what you might call a, the motorcycle-type solution. It's a, a rotary selector. So the selector gear selectors themselves go onto this rotary shaft, which has got a, a groove in it, a shaped groove, or probably six, you know, six-type shaped grooves with pins on the selectors. So as you rotate it, it moves the selectors back and forward depending upon which gear you want. Now, in 1992, uh, well, 1991, we had an H-pattern uh, gearbox in the Jordan 191, um, normal system, mechanical system. And uh, 1992, we went for the motorcycle system, but mechanical. So in other words, all the driver had to do was pull or push it. And it rotated the this drum, which moved the selector mechanism, which was our first sort of step on the way to, to getting a mechanical system that would work and then later on we'd activate it hydraulically. Um, and, and basically it was a, you know, it's one of those sort of systems where the biggest, one of the biggest difficulties in a Formula 1 car is getting a rigid mechanism for a gear change that goes from where the driver's hand wants to be, just beside the steering wheel, to the back of the car. You know, that's down the side of the fuel tank, through the exhaust system. You know, you try to get a straight line as possible for it so it's as rigid as possible. And that was... In itself, that was always a headache with a racing car. It's one of the first things you had to sort of lay out was where the gear change was going to go before you sort of do, start doing the rest of it. And then by, by adapting this rotary uh, drum system, um, we just had a push-pull rod. We still had the, the, the hassle of the rod getting from front to back, but you're getting the mechanical system sorted out. And we had lots of problems with it, but we, you know, we got on top of them at the end of the day. And we were, it was because of flexing, basically, we were able to select two gears at a time and Stefan and Modena um, realized that if you just got onto the gear lever and and sort of preloaded it against changing the next gear uh, the minute you lifted that fraction of a throttle it would go straight through into the next gear and that's what the, where the flexing came basically it was overstressing some of the parts and breaking some gears so um, yeah so basically it's a motorcycle system as such as we know it where you just push a lever up and down and now, um, then it became hydraulically operated. Some people used it pneumatically operated, but the main thing was hydraulically operated to rotate that uh, that selector. And then we've also moved on quite a lot since then, but the basic thing was that you didn't need a mechanical system from the cockpit of the car to the back of the car. You could just do it all with, um, with wires and hydraulics and um, control valves. What sort of speed advances did this confer in terms of, of- gear shifts compared to a, a manual i know i guess there's a reduced downside because it's less likely to go wrong you can't miss a gear in the in the conventional way but just in terms of a standard gear shift yeah there's there's lots and lots of benefits i mean um probably it's it's faster by tenfold you know whenever you're talking about a normal gear change you were talking about you know 0.2.25 of a second um and now you're talking about 0.02 or then you were talking about 0.02 uh, yeah of a second so it was much much faster it meant whenever you hear the commentator saying oh there's 91 gear changes around this lap 
you know, you would never even have thought about uh, changing 91 gears uh, around the lap with a mechanical system. Um, you would have compromised your gears to make sure you didn't have to change gear into a corner or early out of a corner. Now that's just common. You just change gear in the middle of a corner it's so fast that you don't lose the, the drive to the rear wheels, that, you know, the car doesn't change balance. Um, I think if you go back to Hungary, where Max Verstappen was having a, a bit of a problem with his gear change, it wasn't synced correctly. That meant the gear change was was a bit clunky um, and a bit slow when he spun coming out of the penultimate corner um, while he was leading the race. I mean, it, that's one of the things that would happen with a mechanical system. But at the same time as you've been changing gear, you'd only had one hand on the steering wheel. Whereas, you know, he had two hands on the steering wheel changing gear had a bit of a problem with the gear change it meant it was slow and clunky like a normal it wasn't balanced like a normal system and suddenly the car you know the car just spun on them so uh it's made a massive difference to to just the time lost uh during a lap by not having power at the rear wheels you know nowadays you can't see a dip in the speed at all um if you take a speed trace you wouldn't even know you changed up six or seven gears uh, before you would see little, little points in the, in the speed trace. And that was enough to actually know where the gear change was happening at because, you know, with the mechanical system years ago, we didn't have lots and lots of data logging on the car. So picking the gear change points was, was always just this little dip in the speed trace. You could pick it up and uh, you knew where you were. So massive difference in that and perform, overall performance. But again, all the complication does potentially bring some reliability problems. And obviously the semi-automatic gearbox was just a first step. We did then start to see fully automated elements uh, came into to Formula 1. They were eventually uh, banned. So how, how did you see the evolution of that? And do you think it was good that there was a certain amount of restrictions on, on it that sort of froze it as a, as a semi-automatic shift in the end rather than going entirely automatic? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's true to say that we, you know, it's nice to see some, um, some sort of lasting relationship between the driver and what the car does um but you know you can't really hold back technology we've had automatic uh, automatic cars um williams pursued this the constant velocity transmission cvt for a while um so you know where do you stop at where do you sort of where do you try to sort of make sure that you're you've still got some of the history but but you don't you don't uh, hold back technology I think the whenever we had the automatic gearboxes, I think that was just a little bit over the top, you know, because it would it was optimized to everything, you know. But it all became part of traction control. The whole thing became very difficult to to um, sort of really get on top of, I suppose. Um, if you had open house as far as uh, the electronic control of the of the power unit to the rear wheels was concerned, then that's one thing. Just leave it let let it be open completely open. The driver does nothing but presses the throttle. The throttle says, I want more speed or I want more, you know, want to change up the gearbox because the revs are a certain amount. Um, that's, that's all okay because that's where, where road cars are going. Um, but I think now the technology is a good level. The driver still has to do the inputs as far as changing up and changing down is concerned. There's a certain amount of time it all has to happen within each gear change so that it's not stored in the system and does it when it wants to. But it is amazing now, you know, the fact you can change down, um, you know, six gears or something at the end of a straight into a corner in, in you know, milliseconds still. Um, but the, the big thing now is changing up this um, zero torque loss system that, that most people have come up with now. 
and that means that you know the rear wheels are always pushing you forward um, so that the engine never really goes to to zero torque it reduces but it never really goes to zero torque yeah, that's the, the seamless shift technology, isn't it? That was kind of the middle of the first decade of this century that started to come in. So sort of 2005 through to about 2008, everyone was developing it. And it's pretty spectacular. But how do they achieve that? Because that, that to me, seems the next kind of key step after the semi-automatic gearbox, just that it absolutely minimising that that time loss. And say it, it sounds hugely impressive for anyone who's not been fortunate enough to stand uh, near their cars, those, those gear shifts. So how does that, work and what are the challenges of making a seamless shift operate well yeah it's, it's about reliability the, the the thing is i mean back in the early 2000s we didn't have a seamless shift system but the one thing that was important was to um, change gear as quickly as possible um, the faster you can change the gear the less torque you loss you lose but uh, you know it's like anything if you take your road car even now and you fluff a gear change or you make a slow gear change it's very difficult to get into the next gear so it's the same in a racing car the faster you can do it actually the more chance you are of of just getting through into the next gear without a problem and back in the early 2000s we were able to change gear in between six and eight milliseconds from one gear to the next one the problem was it wasn't always that reliable um it was it was still 90 percent luck that it happened Good luck and ten percent bad luck, but the uh, the introduction of the of the zero torque loss system, um, it sort of there's lots of different ways of achieving it, but the main way I think is the the fact that you let's say you're in third gear um, and you want to go up to fourth gear, you will move the selector a selector into fourth gear, but you're still driving in third gear, and as fourth gear picks up the torque on that uh, that selector dog ring then third gear releases um, and you pull it out of gear. So you will, because if you imagine within the gearbox, the, the gears that you're moving, it's not it's not the lay shaft, it's not the crankshaft extension through the gearbox that the gears are on, the selection of the gears are on, it's the, the pinion shaft as such. So when you put it into fourth gear, fourth gear is actually traveling a little bit faster than third gear. So you've got a minute, You've got a, you've got no minute. You've got milliseconds before it picks up the drive, and at that point in time, you preload the selector that's driving it in third gear. So as soon as fourth gear picks up the drive, third gear pulls itself out of, out of gear. So it's a, it's a sort of you've got a window of opportunity uh, within the dog rings on the, the drive of the gearbox between the the dog ring itself and the gear. So you've got that small window of opportunity, and as I say, it, it's just a matter of. When one gear picks up the torque, the other gear is getting released in the torque. If it doesn't pull out of the other gear, that's when you get a lot of debris in the bottom of the gearbox. It, you know, it has to work. But because it's uh, it's all done on a selector barrel, it does work because it's a you know it's a, a mechanical fixed position. So one is in a certain gear, and then the next part of the rotation brings the, the other one out, and that's all timed. That will all be timed in milliseconds. Um, it'll all be timed with load. Um, so it's 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 a very complicated system, but actually it's very simple when you get down to it. We tend to, in modern F1, only really talk about gearboxes when there's failures and grid penalties and that kind of thing. But how significant a performance differentiator do you think it is? Everyone's got broadly similar gearboxes. They're all carbon fibre casings, aren't they? So is that an area of difference, or do you think everybody's got the technology so much under control that the 
that the actual driving function shall we say is about the same i know there's some differences you can make in terms of the casing so for your suspension pickup points and that kind of thing but the gearbox itself is is it a performance differentiator these days um i think the biggest performance differentiator with the gearbox is reliability to be honest once it's all they're all working correctly um i think they're all much of a muchness there is no no difference in the i don't know the friction or the loss of load or the loss of um, engine power through the gearbox anymore the gears, the size of the gears, the width of the gears, the gear centers, all of that stuff is now defined in the regulations. Um, you can only have eight gears in the gearbox and they have to stay there. That's them, They're the ratio you set for the season. So you're using the same, you know, same eight, eight speed gearbox for, for Monaco that you are at Monza. You just don't use so many of them. So uh, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's been brought to a level where when working, everything is more or less working in the same manner. Before this all came about, before 2000s, you had you know, different gear centers, narrower gears. You really pushed it through the, the, the window and the gearbox to, to try and get performance out of it. Um, but now you can't. It's, it's, it's limited. So this, you know, to be honest, you could now have a, as, as I think the FIA wanted to bring in a, a gear cassette, a gearbox cassette, that basically had a, a standard function that was built by somebody like you know X-Track or Hewland or whoever, and, and every team used that. But there was a bit of controversy about that. So, um, but it's it's very close to that now. It's not very far away from from actually doing something like that. Again, as you say, had the the shell around the outside of it. That's that's more like a like a like a chassis structure. It's just a structure that carries a rear suspension, takes the loads from the, from the car, not 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 so much the gearbox. So. Um, a little bit of difference in the diff differential, how the, how the differential works on most cars. Maybe a little bit of a of a, a performance benefit in that area because it's still open to the teams to do different things. But most of them have, have honed in in the same direction because it's a clutch plate differential, hydraulically operated. So you put a hydraulic pressure onto it, and it um, it acts a bit like a clutch. It either slips or it doesn't slip. Um, so. Gearbox-wise, I think performance, no. Reliability is the big thing to make sure it all keeps functioning. And, of course, we've seen more and more teams taking a gearbox supply from a, uh, an engine supplier. Williams was one of the smaller teams that was the last holdout on this. They now use a Mercedes gearbox. And I guess that's quite a pragmatic decision for a team like that, isn't it? Because although, as you say, it's not a great performance differentiator, it is quite a lot of work to produce your gearboxes in-house and you know you require your own gearbox team, particularly as we were talking about earlier in this time of cost caps, that those are people you can better allocate elsewhere. So I guess that's that's logical that, that you don't see that as something that's essential to building your own car. Yes, um, yeah, I agree with you there. I think it is logical, um, but the minute you do it, you you commit yourself to being a small team, um, because you know of the Mercedes, uh, Red Bull, or uh, Ferrari. None of them use a gearbox from somebody else, so they 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 see it as something that they take responsibility for. Not because it makes the car perform better necessarily, or their, their gearbox perform better than. You know, somebody who does their own gearbox. But, um, and again, can add Alpine to that. They do their own gearbox. So, but it's something that they're responsible for to make it sure it's reliable. And then other teams benefit from that reliability. And the thing with a gearbox, the more miles you get on it from different different teams, 
the more reliability problems will pop up that will help you as a as a works team that make your own gearbox. So it's um, it's one of the things I would be reluctant to do, take another team's gearbox, um, because the minute you do that, as I say, you, you admit to yourself that you're you're now not a you know a fully um, a fully enclosed team that can can cope with anything that comes at them. You're you're relying on another manufacturer. So that I would I would be fighting my cause for having a design group department that was capable of doing everything for the car other than the power unit because at that point in time if you you know if joe blogs power units come along audi for example and they build the best power unit in the world you can do the rest of it and you can do a deal with them and get their power unit um without having to have you know the other half of the car that's people like uh aston martin are getting from mercedes so it's it's a very difficult decision. I would I like to think that sort of going your own direction is is the right way to go. And it's the same. James Key was one of my ex employees at Jordan. Um, he had the same philosophy at Toro Rosso. He didn't uh, like the fact of using Red Bull stuff. He wanted to stand alone because one day uh, you never knew what was going to happen. And if you're going to be a, a Formula One team that was fully encompassing then you need to be able to do all that sort of stuff. Um, and at McLaren, he's, he's got that opportunity now. So I would be thinking the same way as, as him, um, a team that you need to be sure that you've got a design department that can cope with anything. And it should be noted, Williams have said that they are trying to preserve the capacity to go back to producing their own gearboxes in the future. So I guess they see this as a bit of an interim step. But just a, a final thing, to cycle back to that period when the semi-automatic gearboxes were rapidly developing in F1 in the first half of the 90s, it's always quite interesting when it comes to gearboxes and teams because people will always refer to, because I know Jordan used quite a bit of Hewland stuff and some extract stuff at times, but it was never an off-the-shelf gearbox really, was it? Although certainly not not after the, the early stages. So how did that work? When you're a team like Jordan in that period, trying to develop your own various iterations of, of semi-automatic gearboxes, how did it work in terms of that process and what you're mixing and matching in terms of off-the-shelf components and your own stuff? Well, it was great, to be honest. You know, um, as far as the, the, the use of Hewland components or, or extract components was concerned, uh, we, we, we would use whatever we felt was best at the time um but as far as that was concerned it was it was more the 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 gears uh the gear shaft the the crown wheel and pinion uh all the gear cut stuff when you think on gear you know gear gear cutting um that's the stuff we would use from from um from hewlander extract then you go into the the mechanism for the gear change and that that sort of thing we do ourselves we could have you know, you can have dog rings with six dogs on them, uh, four dogs on them, three dogs on them, whatever you fancy it, you know, it was all about strength. And um, the less dogs you have, the bigger the window of opportunity for getting into the new gears concerned because you've got a bigger gap. Um, but the, you know, the, the less dogs you had, had, the more damage you could do. So everything was a compromise. Um, so at any point in time, you know, Hewland would come up with something extract would come up with something we think okay that would be okay um but as i say i would classify our use of those componentry as gears and we were responsible for the for the for the complete package how to put it all together and make it all work and you know we we were quite good i think at getting into bed with people like hewland or, or extract working with them so we we both knew what we were trying to achieve from it all so 
that's the important thing. It doesn't matter. You know, we used at Jordan, we used outside manufacturers to make gear components, and we would use extract or hulum to make our gears or our dog rings or our Kremlin pinion, but then we'd use other ex- outside suppliers to make our gear rotary mechanisms or ratchet mechanisms or whatever. So it's just about people making stuff. You're listening to The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. Well, now it's time to hear from John Barnard, one of the legendary designers in Formula One. He was at Ferrari in 1989 when the semi-automatic gearbox made its winning debut with Nigel Mansell in the Brazilian Grand Prix. And as we discussed with him in season one, he was the man behind carbon fibre monocoques in F1 and without doubt one of the most important technical minds in motorsport history. So here's what happened when Gary had a chat to him about the semi-automatic gearbox. Um, the late 80s then, you know, at Ferrari, you, you introduced the paddle shift, uh, which now is the norm in Formula 1 and, and lots of formulas. Mm. Um, what, what, what brought that about? It was quite, quite funny, actually, because um, it, what brought it about was the fact that um, I, I just got fed up trying to feed a metal tube gear shift through a chassis, past a fuel tank, past an engine, Weedle it back into the gearbox with about three or four uh, universal joints that all ended up getting sloppy. So the gear lever would fall. I mean, it was just a horrible device. And I thought, how on earth can I do this? My first thought was, if I if if I can, you know, we had electrohydraulic valves by that time. If I can just have a button, an up and a down button, and I wasn't even thinking about the clutch. I thought, well, they still have the clutch. But instead of moving the gear lever, they just push the button as they push the clutch. And of course, once you start down that road of introducing electronics to operate a hydraulic valve, it opens up a whole new area. And the first thing that happened is, of course, the clutch became automatic, but it was all synchronized with the gear shift. Um, at that stage, we didn't have um, we didn't have electronic throttles, so we couldn't synchronize the throttle. So the driver had to he had to use the throttle a bit more carefully. He had to be sort of on it in terms of certainly down-changing. But um, it, it, it just allowed me, again, a whole better package. You know, I could take, throw away the gear shift, throw away the room that required in the cockpit, um, not have to worry about all that, those tubes and links and things. And that's really what prompted me to do it. Of course, once you do it, it opens up all these other areas like, oh, all of a sudden you don't over-rev the engine because, you know, now it's not down to the driver. The, the gear shift says, no, you can't change down at this speed, chum, because you can over-rev the engine. So it stops you doing it. Well, um, yeah, during that period, Roberto Moreno did your test driving, I think, at Ferrari. And he was driving my Formula 3000 car at the same time. We won right. the championship that <laughs> year. So I, he used to tell me... He used to tell me some of the stories. Um, <laughs> Probably more than he told me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't go into some of them now. Um, but no, it was, a, it was a big thing, obviously. And I mean, to get it all working right was no easy task. I think it, it did take a bit of time. And obviously, I think Nigel was driving for you then at the beginning of that. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, they, they, it was a very strange time because in the middle of 88, um, 88 was a strange year when we went through that turbo, normally aspirated change. And I'd done a car for 1988 with a V12 in it, which never raced, um, but it did have the gearbox. And I remember in the middle of 88, old man for Enzo died. And along came somebody from Fiat who was going to take over. And he kind of saw himself as, as, uh, as the next Enzo, if you like. He, he, he was desperate not to make a mess of it, having, you know, Enzo having gone. And he fought heavily against the paddle shift idea and um, even got the, t- the, the team in Maranello to build a mechanical version of the 639, the one that we built for, for 88, um, with the mechanical gearbox version in it. And I think Nigel took it round Fiorano for like half a dozen laps and got out and said, no, forget it, give me the other one. <laughs> so that was it, really. That was kind of, you know, just nailed it from there on. Mind you, I would say that uh, it wasn't without its problems. I mean, there was a great reliability problems at the beginning, and I got absolutely pasted in the Italian press for every time it stopped. And it wasn't always the gearbox. Sometimes it was just an electronic failure. Some uh, We found out later that a lot of the problem was because the the uh, alternator that was driven off the front of the crankshaft uh, with a belt, um, the belt would come off or break, the alternator would stop, all the power would go, and the first thing stopped working was the gearbox. So it was like, oh, it must be the gearbox has gone wrong again, you know. Uh, that, that was a big stress. All these things are a bit of a circle of events. I mean, it, nothing ever happens easily. You know, old saying Rome wasn't built in a day, but... You know, you must be very proud again that it's taken, you know, every car in the pit lane has it now, no matter what the formula. Yeah, I am. I mean, I, I, again, you know, it's it's not just on the race cars either. It's on all the road cars too, you know. So many road cars, you know, with paddles on them. It's, um, it's you know, not, they don't all work the same way, admittedly. But, um, uh, yeah, I am. And, I mean, to, again, you know, it's there, is, there are just so many advantages to it. Um I know the purists think, oh, you know, you've got to be pushing a clutch and pulling a lever. But at the end of the day, um, this is technology. Formula One's about technology. Um, but there was a funny story, actually, when I was doing the, doing, developing this thing in Ferrari with the, with the gearbox team. Somebody came, some of the, one of the old chaps at Ferrari came along and he said, Oh, we've done all this before, you know. <laughs> and apparently, they built um, they built a mechanical box, I suppose, like a motorcycle shift, virtually, um, for a gearbox back when Villeneuve was driving. And Villeneuve tested it and got out and said, "Well, you know, that, that can't see the benefit in that." He was still pulling a lever. I mean, it was sequentially shifting, basically. Can't see the benefit in that, so they just dumped it <laughs> and just uh, carried on with the old normal, normal gate.
If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, we'd love for you to send us a question. And if you're lucky, we might just answer it on a future episode. Send your question to podcasts at therace.com, either in written form or as a voice note on your phone. So that's podcasts at therace.com. And remember, there's a hyphen in the race. This week's question is from Kenny Stoltz, who says, the 2022 cars seem to struggle more on damp tracks and at lower speed circuits like Monaco, Hungary and Singapore. Is this due to the underbody aero, stiff suspension or something else? Is there a reg change that could make better racing at these tracks? Well, it is due to a combination of things, but you mainly got them all there. I think the uh, the stiffness of the cars because of the ground effect is something that's, you know, doubled over the last few years. Um, you know, you have to run the car stiff to keep it uh, the platform fairly decent um, to produce the downforce consistently. But also that goes to, to the tyres. Tyres wear 13-inch rims, now they're 18-inch rims. The tyre itself's got a little bit bigger, so it's not just as simple a change as that as far as sidewall height is concerned. But the tyre uh, compliance has been reduced, and that's something in the wet that's quite important. I mean, if you can't put the loads into it, into the tyre, because the track's slippery, then the tyre compliance is is being reduced as a big thing that the driver feels. So you know, now the car will, will snap or do things a lot quicker than it did before. Um, so you have to sort of drive within that, I suppose you might call it, allow the car to uh, to get the feel from the car is, is quite a lot more difficult this year, I think, than it was with 13-inch rims because the, the car's not moving that little bit on the tyre that le- allows you to feel the tyre build up the load. And I think that's true even in the drive for some for some cars. It's either, you know, you've either got understeer um, or you've got a lot of understeer. And it's just about not knowing where that limit is all the time. I think, you, you know, the, the, the fact that it's wet, I think if we look to Suzuka, we see that somebody like Max Verstappen in the race there just dominated it. I mean, he won by, what, 25 seconds or something um, from Charles Leclerc. So there was no... That was a straightforward 26-lap race, I believe. Um, average that out a second lap. He was faster than the guy finished second. He didn't have to be, um, and he was probably just in a rhythm, you know, just to keep it going because he had a good feeling for the car. But if you don't have a good feeling for the car, then suddenly you're a second lap slower. So I don't think there's anything that you can do. I don't think it's it's just the fact that 2022 cars are, are, um, are worse in the wet than the 2021 cars were. I think it's just the fact that uh, they're harder to get right, I suppose it is. They're hard to get the feeling from the car, to give the driver the confidence to push. Um, but it can happen. And I don't think there's anything really in the regulations that, that should be changed to suit it. Downforce is downforce. Downforce created by the front wing, the rear wing, or the underfloor is still just loading the tyres. So I think you have to look at the fact that the cars are running stiffer, as you say, so there's less compliance in the suspension. The tyres are less sidewalls, there's less lateral compliance in the tyre, so the driver doesn't get the same feedback. And you have to have more faith in, in your feeling than you had before. It's, it's not The car isn't as lazy as it was before, I suppose you might call it. Um, it's more precise, but that means that just the driver just doesn't get the feeling as easily. And the elements of them struggling on lower speed tracks, obviously there is this 
fundamental thing that with ground effect cars, obviously, it can be difficult, particularly to get the front end aero load into slower corners. But have you been impressed with the progress teams have made? Because they seem to be, even with the lack of aero devices, they seem to have been gaining more and more control over moving that aero centre of pressure around, doing all those things where you're you're kind of playing tunes with the aerodynamics. It's not just about downforce, but moving that around to give those characteristics. Has it surprised you how quickly they've made progress with that? Um, well, yeah, well, it's no surprise. I mean, it, from my point of view, it was all there before. So the thing is, you don't you don't get to the end of the season and forget everything you learned. You, even the regulations change, you still keep the same philosophy. And the thing that the you know in the past was always the fact that you wanted a car that had centre pressure a bit further forward in the in the low and medium speed corners, and then it went rearward the faster you went. The things that happen with that is obviously load increases. Uh, the rear ride height will change more than the front ride height because of that load. Um, and the, you've got the, the uh, front wheels that steer. And if you can if you can sort out your aerodynamics so that your centre of pressure moves forward, the more steering lock you have on it, then you get all those benefits. You get more downforce in the front of the car at low speed and a bit less downforce in the front of the car at high speed. Not easy to do, but it's achievable. And I'm pretty sure that's one of uh, Red Bull's biggest assets. The, they've always worked a lot on, on load jacking across the car, uh, on their aerodynamics of the front wing they ran in 2021. You know, that type of style front wing uh, aerodynamically made a lot of difference when the steering lock was applied. So you don't forget all that. You just have to try and find other mechanisms with new regulations that will create the same or some of the same characteristics. And I think they've done that very well. So it's about uh, using your, your little noggin, giving it a scratch and finding a new solution to the same problem. And yes, the teams have, some of the teams have benefited in that area for sure. Um, I, I talk about cars that have, um, that has understeer with grip. Understeer with grip gives you a confident car. If you can turn the steering wheel a little bit more and the front still grips and turns more, that's good. If you have a understeer without grip, that means you just put steering lock on and if you have more steering lock on, you just get more understeer. And that's, that's bad. So you need to get a car that's got understeer with grip to give the driver confidence. Um, to not make the car too pointy, but still have a good front end to, to get it into the corner. Well, as always, a great answer to the question there and a great question from Kenny Stoltz. So a reminder, please do send your questions to podcasts at therace.com. Either you can write the question or leave a voice note with your name so we can include it in a future episode. Well, thanks very much, Gary, for your outstanding insight. As always, very much looking forward to getting through this second series. There's some great topics lined up. Thanks to everyone for listening and join us next week for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.